there. Welcome back to The Expressionists. I'm sitting next to Olivia Rosenman. And I'm sitting next to Helen Rydstrand. And before we sink our teeth into today's episode, we have a request and an invitation for you. The request is that if you are enjoying The Expressionists, that you take a brief moment. Perhaps this moment right now. That would be appropriate. Take this moment to leave us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. Yes, you can leave a review on Facebook or on whichever other podcast player you are using. And it is true that leaving us a review helps others to find the show. And it also lets us know what you like and what you want more of and what you don't. And our invitation is to sign up for our brand new fortnightly newsletter. Most importantly, it will remind you that there's a new episode coming out, so you can always be on the cutting edge of idiom discussions, and there'll also be the occasional extra idiomatic tidbit in there, just for newsletter subscribers. And you can sign up right now. It's very easy. Just go to our website, expressionists.audio, fill in your email, and Bob's your uncle. That done, on with today's episode, which is about our feline and canine friends. Thanks to Olivia's excellent sister, Elena Rosenman, for this commission. We'll be fighting it out like cats and dogs. Well, not really, but it's certainly raining cat and dog idioms up to date. It's true. There were a lot of cat and dog idioms to choose from. Just some examples from our long list. The cat that got the cream, the cat's pyjamas. There's not enough room to swing a cat. To let the cat out of the bag. Yes, well, if we include all of them in this episode, would have been a dog's breakfast. <laughs> uh, we also considered barking up the wrong tree, being as sick as a dog, doing a dog and pony show, but we decided it's better to let sleeping dogs lie. <clears throat> anyway, we figured this theme was aptly timed, given that last month saw both International Cat Day and also national, weirdly not international, but it is celebrated internationally, Dog Day. Cat Day was the 8th of August and National Dog Day was the 26th of August. So it's about time that we uh, said some things about cats and dogs. Did you celebrate either of those, Olive? You know me, Helen. I probably would be pretty unlikely to celebrate Cat Day. Mm-hmm. Dog Day, I actually missed Dog Day. So you dogged Dog Day. I dogged dog day. I dodged dog day. You dogged it. Is that a saying? I remember it from high school. Oh, why did you dog me? Like when you bar someone, you don't talk to them? Okay. Yeah, I guess I did dog dog day, but not intentionally. <laughs> I feel a bit sad to have missed it, in fact. I actually love to have pictures of dogs in uh, my social media feeds. In fact, some people who know me know that I have a special folder on my desktop <gasps> that has pictures of the dogs in my life that I love. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah, sometimes I just look at them. But I actually, I'm always a bit confused. What is the point of Cat Day and Dog Day? Yeah, so that's always been uh, one of my confusions as well. Like, you know, International Women's Day makes sense. That does make sense. an important cause to raise awareness about, or like Cancer Council Day, Daffodil Day, things like that. Mm -hmm. All make perfect sense. So yeah, Cat Day and Dog Day both seem to be kind of about encouraging people to adopt rescue animals rather than buy fancy pedigrees. And also, weirdly, to neuter your pets rather than just let them breed randomly. Oh, well, I agree with both of those causes. Yeah, I think we can get behind that. So Helen, why don't we stop pussyfooting around and... And get on with it. So we've whittled it down to a list of four idioms. Two cats, two dogs. First up, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And the cat's got your tongue. And then dog days and the hair of the dog. So let's get started, Olivia. Tell me exactly how many ways are there to skin a cat? And also, why would you skin a cat? I know you don't like them, but jeez. Yes, Helen, I know you're a cat person and I was worried that you might be upset by discussing the skinning of cats. 
So, yes, the expression does actually come from the literal skinning of cats. Now, why did people skin cats? Cat skin and cat fur was used for all the things that you use leather and fur for. Shoes, gloves, musical instruments, uh, fur coats. In fact, it takes about 24 cats to make a cat fur coat. And the majority of cat fur cultivation and trade happens in China. Still, you mean? Still. Also the Philippines, Korea and Thailand. And in fact, over the years, there have been several calls for bans on imports of various items from China because unlabeled stuff on analysis are found to be made of cat and dog fur. Wow. Okay. I mean, the same sorts of debates happen around the eating of cats and dogs. Exactly. Yeah. I personally am of the belief that if you eat a cow or wear leather shoes, I'm not sure why you wouldn't want to wear a cat (laughs) fur coat. But that is a discussion for another time in another podcast. I think so, yes. So let's first of all just explain the meaning of the idiom for anyone who isn't familiar with it. According to the Oxford Dictionary of Proverbs, to skin a cat means that there is more than one route or method by which something can be accomplished. So how old is this phrase? Has it been around very long? Helen, it's been around for almost 200 years. The first recorded usage was in 1854 in a piece of writing by a man called Seba Smith, an American humorist and writer. And the book was called Way Down East, and it was a collection of his best stories about Yankee life. (laughs) He's an interesting man, Seba Smith. It's an interesting name, Seba. I haven't come across that before. Have you? Seba, no. S-E-B-A. I may well be mispronouncing it. Seba? Seba, Seba. So he founded the Daily Portland Courier in 1829. He became famous publishing a regular column that was a letter from a fictional Yankee character. And he was one of the first writers to use the American vernacular in humour. So he really developed the American humour with this fictional character, Major Jack Downing. Mm-hmm. Also, he is credited with the first recorded usage of the word scrumptious. That's great. Yeah. I think I learnt that word in Anne of Green Gables. So it's an American idiom then, is it? Well, not exactly. So another early recorded usage was from Old Blighty from England, Charles Kingsley, who lived in the 19th century and was a priest of the Church of England and also a university professor. He also wrote some novels. And so the phrase appears in one of his books called Westward Ho in 1855, the year after Seba Smith's Way Down East was published. However, it's a delightfully British variation there are more ways of killing a cat than choking it with cream. Hmm. All right. So we're looking for ways that we might kill a cat here or do violence on yeah. cats. So there are other variants, including there are more ways of killing a dog than choking it with butter. Huh. And that there are more ways of killing a dog than hanging it. All facts. All facts, all involving the slaughter of pets. Sorry, all the pet lovers out there. There's also another variant from the southern US states that instead of cats, it's catfish. And that makes a lot of sense to people who come from those areas of the US where they eat a lot of catfish because apparently the skin of catfish is very tough. So you generally always skin the catfish when you eat it. Okay, Mm -hmm. there you go. So there you go. There's a nice one that doesn't have anything to do with dead felines. And once again is another example of our inconsistent approach to animals because most people are fine with killing fish but not cats. Well, yeah, I was about to comment on that because you were like, see, that's better. It's Mm -hmm. just a fish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fish fish don't have any feeling. I'd also just like to let you know one more interesting fact about to skin a cat. Can okay, I? yes. Uh, so it's also the name of a gymnastics move. <laughs> what? Yeah. And, <laughs> and I would like to read you the instructions on how to perform it. And these are instructions from Gymnastics 
WOD.com. That's gymnastics workout of the day. Not word of the day. That's what I assumed. It's gymnastics word of the day. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to read out the way that this person described it because what I think is really interesting is that it seems that gymnastics terminology is in fact very metaphorical. Okay. While I'm reading this, you could just start tallying the metaphors in this description. I don't know. See how that goes. Okay. Start in a dead hang position with body hollow and hands turned out. Do a toe raise and allow the feet to continue through your elbows. Stay in a pike position, send toes toward the ground. Finish in a hollow body position and arms full extension. Tuck your head in and bring thighs to your chest as you initiate the rewind. Finish with a hang in hollow body position. What? Wow, that's fascinating, isn't it? We'll put a video on our website showing how to perform this move. It's usually done either hanging from a bar or hanging from those ropes with the handles, you know. I'm mm-hmm. sure there's a word for them. I'd say there is. Yeah. yeah. How do you allow your feet to continue through your elbows? You've just got to watch I the video, have, Helen. You've just got to watch It's, it's very hard to describe. We'll, all, we'll have a look. I think it's really interesting to see just how many metaphors they use because obviously it is hard to describe movements of the body. So they've just got particular positions and movements that everyone knows the name for, Mm. which you just have to actually learn with your body. Yeah, these instructions are not for the uninitiated, that's for sure. Okay, so that's uh, gymnastics. Does it pop up anywhere else in popular culture? Yes, there was a 2016 documentary film called To Skin a Cat, Mm -hmm. and that was also quite a literal interpretation of the meaning. It was about the decline in Southern Africa's leopard populations due to widespread skin trade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that is a contemporary reminder of the idiom's darker past, which is, in fact, not all ancient history. And I would like to just finish this discussion about skinning cats with a usage example from a very well-known politician. A cap and trade was just one way of skinning the cat. It was not the only way. It was a means, not an end. Obama? Of course. Obama. Right. Let's move on, Helen. Well, I would like to shift our discussion to a more cat-empowering idiom, if I may, Olive. If you want to ask someone why they are remaining silent, you'd possibly ask, what's the matter? Has the cat got your tongue? Olivia, can you guess how old this is? I mean, whenever would there be a time when cats would have been allowed access or would have <laughs> potentially been able to get at a human's tongue? I don't know. Um, I think that you are taking an unusual approach to working this out. Does it feel to you just generally like a new or an old idiom? It seems pretty ye oldy to me. So quite surprisingly for me, and many other sources comment on it as well, its first entry in the Oxford English Dictionary is only 1911. And it's also listed under the entry for tongue in a subheading that reads, in many colloquial and proverbial expressions of obvious meaning. So it doesn't really kind of warrant its own heading and its own kind of exploration. It's just kind of one of this list of tongue-related idioms that aren't interesting really to the OED. But that first quotation comes from a novel by Henry Howard Harper. Uh, So that's the end of that story. Let's move on. Wait, wait, what? (laughs) So he just made it up? (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Um, Actually, some other sources cite an earlier example, but not much earlier, really. It comes in a US illustrated newspaper called Baloo's Monthly Magazine in 1881. 
and the quote from that is, has the cat got your tongue, as the children say? So the source that I found referenced this, which is a cool one called the phrase finder, suggests that the fact that it's identified as kids lingo in this quotation means it might actually be older, under the reasoning that children's language tends to be distinct from adult talk, and most usually it's not written down or published properly until it comes to be used by adults, so it might have been predating 1880s a little bit, but This is pretty scanty evidence, really, I think. So we can really only date it to the late 19th century. All right. So then any theories about where it might come from if we don't have any hard facts? Yes, there are a few different origin stories floating around, all unsubstantiated, I should say. One that I came across is the idea that the English Navy, who would sometimes whip people with the cat o' nine tails. It was very painful to be whipped by that. And the idea is that the pain is so severe that the victim wouldn't say anything for a while afterwards and people would be like, ha-ha, cat's got your tongue, as in the cat o' nine tails. That makes sense. Yeah, but I also came across quite a few sources that dissed that idea, including one discussion forum that described this by the term a canoe, which is an acronym for conspiracy to attribute nautical origins to everything. That is great, actually. But... There are a lot of words or phrases with maritime there, origins. Oh, there are. So. You can see why people fall into this trap, yep. Yep. Uh, the maritime trap. Um, another even wilder explanation is that it refers to a practice from ancient Egypt in which liars or blasphemers' tongues were cut out and fed to cats, which were, of course, worshipped at the time. This also seems to be entirely fanciful, though. Uh, most proper sources seem to just shrug at this point. It's kind of a violent variant of washing your mouth out with soap. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm. Yep, much a harsher punishment, for sure. It's in line with um, if you steal something, you get your hand cut off, right? Yeah. So that's as far as it goes, the track, in terms of uh, sources that actually suggest explanations for it. But do you find any other clues on how this saying may have made its way into our language? So there is a similar idiom in French, which translates literally to I throw or give my tongue to the cat, um, which apparently actually means something like I give up, I can't guess the riddle or the conundrum or something, or I have nothing to say. I don't know which might have come first, whether it was ours or theirs, but they do point to the fact that we conflate the power of speech along with language itself with the organ that helps to produce it. And that kind of figurative thinking has a really long history. And the most basic idiom or phrase that we associate it with is probably just saying to hold one's tongue, which just means to say nothing, or it has a more archaic variant, which is to keep one's tongue, which could mean either to keep one's word, as in to keep your promise, or to stay quiet. The first instance of holding one's tongue that the Oxford English Dictionary cites is in Old English, and it's attributed to King Alfred uh, at around 897 Common Era, or AD, in Old Money, which I'm not going to attempt to pronounce at all. But the bit that I can recognise in it actually shows that it has a Germanic origin of the language, or this part of the language, something about his tongan gehelden, Uh, which sounds super German to me. So that's really interesting. It also turns up in Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew and also in Macbeth in about 1616. So I feel like the cat having your tongue has really just grown out of a longer story. It's weird that that we introduced the cat. Yeah. Shakespeare takes us to the 17th century, but anything more recent than that, Helen? Yes. I found a song by a band called Fujia and Miyagi which is called Cat Got Your Tongue. This band formed in 2000 in Brighton. You don't know we're such a bread is buttered on. You don't know we're such a bread is buttered on. Has a cat got your tongue? You don't know I like that. I mean, the cool thing about that song seems to be 
I mean, to me at least, mainly that its lyrics are all made up of idioms. Yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> Uh, okay, so let's move on, Helen. I think it's time now that we spoke about dogs. How much is that dog in the window? <laughs> the one with the waggly tail. How much is that dog in the window? Helen, what do you think of when you hear the expression <laughs> do dog days? I don't really know this one, actually. I thought it was about being young, but I realised that that's salad days, isn't it? Which yes. Which also is mysterious. Yes, and you wouldn't want to mix up your dog days and your salad days. Helen, it actually has two meanings. The meaning that people are probably most familiar with is a period of inactivity or decline. So an example from the Oxford English Dictionary is, these are indeed dog days for British film production. Why is that about dogs? Perhaps I will share with you the other meaning, and maybe it's more obvious from there, but also maybe not. The dog days are the hottest period of the year, so typically those hot, uncomfortable, sultry days of late summer. So in the Northern Hemisphere, where most of the sources I consulted are based, that it would be late July to early August, down here in Australia, you know those days right at the end of January and the beginning of February where it's just really hot and it's been hot for a while. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yep. it's easy to see how the second meaning derives from the first meaning, right? Inactivity, uh, decline, mm-hmm. languidness, right. languidity. Just lying around. Lying around, right. Like a dog? Yeah, so a lot of people think that this meaning comes from the fact that dogs, when it's hot, just lie around and don't really do much. Sensible, really. I've seen many a dog do that. I mean, they say only mad dogs in Englishmen go out in the midday sun. True. However, it's not right. Oh, so what do you mean it's not right? That's not why we call those hot days in late summer dog days. Okay, so where does it actually come from then? It goes way back and has its roots in Greek and Roman astrology. What? Yeah. So the dog days were the period after the rising of the star Sirius. And Sirius is also known colloquially as the dog star. Ah, that makes sense because of Harry Potter. Oh, really? Yeah, remember... I mean, have no, you, not, no. you not read it? You know, Helen, I don't do Harry Potter. What? Oh, my goodness. Actually, I didn't know that. You didn't know that? Maybe I've known it in the past and I've just blocked it out. I don't advertise it because it often initiates this kind of reaction. Right. Anyway, so there's a character called Sirius Black, for those who are, like Olivia, uninitiated, uh, and he can become a dog. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. The dog star actually refers to its prominence in a constellation, Canis Majoris, mm-hmm. which is the greater dog. And so that period of time, when Sirius rises, is in this period of late summer in the Northern Hemisphere, so July to August, and that is connected with heat, drought, sudden thunderstorms, and also lethargy, fever, mad dogs, and bad luck in these ancient Greek and Roman Mm -hmm. astrological traditions. And incidentally, that time is also the time that the Nile flooded. But how does it get into English? So we picked it up in English from the Latin, the Latin words dies caniculares, which means literally dog days, Mm -hmm. or days dog, literally. But that phrase first appeared in English as canicular days in a 1398 translation of a book on natural sciences by Friar Bartholomew de Glanville, and he was a Franciscan professor of theology. And then the earliest recorded usage of dog days was in a 1538 Latin English dictionary by Thomas Eliot. And he was a humanist and a diplomat, according to the concise Oxford Companion to English Literature. And his translations were also very important to the popularization of the classics. So we have him to thank for that not to be 
confused with T.S. Eliot. No. A little bit later. A little bit later. And no S. I'm looking forward to the dog days. I prefer them. I love the dog to days. To all the other days, I'd have to say. Okay, so that's really interesting history. What about now? People still talk about it. I mean, they haven't been talking about it to me, obviously. But It's funny, Helen, because I happen to know that you know and maybe like Florence and the Machine. Oh, I do know this phrase. Yeah, that's what I know it from. Yeah. Maybe that's also why I thought it was about youth. Exactly. Well, yes. So Florence and the Machine had a pop hit. So the song was released in 2008 as a single from the album Lungs, which was released in 2009. The inspiration for that song came from a large public artwork by a Swiss artist named Ugo Rondinone. Rondinone? Ugo Rondinone? Great name. Giant rainbow text on the side of the Waterloo Bridge that read the dog days are over. Cool. So she saw that every day when she rode her bike over the bridge and that provided inspiration for the song. Okay. Al Pacino also has something to do with this phrase. He played the lead character in a 1975 film called Dog Day Afternoon. About, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah? You know it? Uh, you know, I used to work in a video store. I can picture the cover. Wow. So it's about a botched bank robbery. So what was on the cover? Oh, you know, him with like a gun and stuff. Yeah, right. So after one has had a nice languid dog day, I might want... Hair of the dog that bit me. So that's Jack Nicholson in The Shining. The definition of the hair of the dog that bit you is to have a little bit of alcohol, usually actually the specific alcohol that you'd been drinking the night before when you have a hangover as a cure. So the idea is that that makes you better. And it's usually these days just the hair of the dog rather than the hair of the dog that bit you. Yeah. But Helen, what is the connection between dog hair and booze? Whenever I'm drinking, there's not dog hair anywhere Around. Yeah, ideally there's no dog hair in your drink, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not really an obvious connection. It's an implied analogy, actually, to an old idea that to stave off rabies, you literally need some of the hair from the dog that bit you to put on the wound. Oh, that's disgusting. Yes. Amazing, right? I can imagine that being a thing. Wow. What a great idea. Uh, so it, this is actually a bit like a kind of homeopathy, which is, of course, that um, scientifically questionable system of health treatment, which was developed in its modern form by an 18th, 19th century German physician. So this guy, Samuel Hahnemann, uh, experimented on himself with extracts from cinchona bark, which is where quinine comes from, and he found that it caused fever on its own. So from this he got the idea of homeopathy, which is similia similibus curantur, how's that? Which just means like cures like. Um, yeah. There you go. Oh, okay. and this actually seems to have persisted into the 19th century. Found in the Oxford Dictionary of Superstitions, a reference to an amazing case in an 1873 publication called Lancashire Legends, which talks about an 1872 court case about an assault where the owner of the dog who had bitten a child refused to give some of the hairs to its mum to cure the kid. What a funny case. Can you imagine that conversation? It really just brings such a vivid picture of the altercation between the mum you could at least give me some hairs from the dog after you've let it bite my kid. <laughs> Helen, it sounds like the hair of the dog might be a little bit easier to track than the cat's tongue. 
Yeah, it is indeed. The Oxford English Dictionary has a nice old medieval first example from 1546 in John Haywood's A Dialogue Containing the Number in Effect of All the Proverbs in the English Tongue. I believe John Haywood has come up in the podcast before. Yeah, well, I mean, he has this great book of proverbs of the English tongue. So, If he was alive, we'd have him on the show. Yeah, be a friend of ours. Oh, yeah. There you go. So it has a long, nice long history, good 600 years or so. And does it just exist in English? There are phrases uh, referring to this idea of that it's a, a good plan to have a bit of alcohol the next day after you've had a heavy drinking sesh in lots of other languages, but they're not all the same. In a bunch of languages such as Polish, Bosnian, Bulgarian, Croatian, hair of the dog is also called a wedge. So it's a, something for getting something else out. So you use the wedge to get a wedge out. So in Romanian, Italian and Spanish, it's a nail. So a nail pulls out a nail, which is funny. Mm-hmm. They're not suggesting that you should swallow a nail, are they? <laughs> I don't think so, Olive. Doesn't seem like Doesn't a good Doesn't seem idea. like a good solution. I suppose maybe you'd no longer be concerned about your hangover if you... <laughs> Had a nail in your throat. Yep, yep. In a few Northern European languages, it's a repair beer. I like that. Yeah. It's in Danish, Norwegian, Finnish, and in Austrian German, although in Germany proper, it's a counter beer. Um, In China, this is a cool one, in China, alcohol drunk to relieve a hangover is called... Hui Guizhou. (laughs) Which literally means uh, the drink that brings back your soul. Yeah, your soul or or a ghost. Uh Uh-huh. And apparently also in Tanzania... Is a similar kind of idea. A Swahili phrase means to assist waking up after a coma, which reminded me of that cocktail, it's a 1930s style one called the Corpse Reviver, which is equal parts gin, lemon juice, Cointreau, Kina Lile, um, which originally contained quinine, and a dash of absinthe. I think the fact that this exists in so many languages really just is a testament to the fact that it actually works. Any more recent examples of the hair of the dog? Yeah, so it is um, pretty popular with rock and rollers, I found. But it's actually, I should say, a very unoriginal band name, unfortunately, for anyone who was considering going down that route. Hair of the Dog are either a Scottish rock trio, or it could also be one of the world's foremost Celtic rock bands based in upstate New York. There's an Australian contingent of uh, Hair of the Dog as well, a Melbourne-based band. I mean, I feel like it's an obvious name for a rock band. Yeah. Find another drinking idiom to name your band for, I say. Yes, and if you need any assistance, we had a whole episode about them, so go back to episode four. Yep, do that. So that is all the dogs and cats we've got time for today. And we really would love to hear from you on Facebook and on Twitter, so drop us a line. We do take requests. So if there are any expressions you've really got your knickers in a knot about, let us know and we'll investigate them for you. Thank you for listening. I'm Olivia Rosenman. And I'm Helen Rydstrand. And we'll see you next time on The Expressionists. Yeah, I think we got it. Are you in? I think so. Yeah, we've got something. <laughs> <laughs>